Welcome to Escape the Earth. We are a sci-fi and fantasy podcast broadcasting from an undisclosed location within the San Antonio Public Library. We are supported by the library and by the San Antonio Public Library Foundation. So big shout out to them. I'm Mary Elizabeth and my other crew members today are Alyssa. Hi, everybody. And Tim. Greetings, Earthlings. Today, we're going to be talking about Paolo Bacigalupi's The Wind-Up Girl. Before we get into that, though, we just want to warn everyone about a couple of things. First, there will be spoilers. We go into this assuming you have read the book, and so we aren't going to tiptoe around anything. If you haven't read the book, hit that pause button, go read it, and come back to us. Part of our goal is to encourage people to read the books with us. Second, this is geared towards adults. We're not potty mouths or anything, but sometimes the subject matter will not be for youngling ears. Yay, youngling ears. Watch out. Because this episode might be loaded with those topics. Don't let your kids listen to Escape the Earth today. So I'm going to go over the bio for Paolo Bacigalupi. And this is from windupstories.com. It's his author info page. I'm going to give you the short bio. Paolo Bacigalupi is an internationally best-selling author of speculative fiction. He's won the Hugo, the Nebula, World Fantasy, John W. Campbell, and Locus Awards, as well as being a finalist for the National Book Award and a winner of the Michael L. Prince Award for Excellence in Young Adult Literature. Paolo's work often focuses on questions of sustainability and the environment, which I didn't get at all from this book, most notably the impacts of climate change. He has written novels for young adults, adults, children, and is currently at work on a new new novel. He can be found online at windupstories.com, which is where this short bio came from. I think Alyssa's going to give us the climate change-free synopsis of The Wind-Up Girl. Indeed, indeed. Although I have to comment quickly on his bio, I didn't realize that the author had also written books for young adults and children, and I feel very inclined to go seek those out. Very curious, because his materials are very adult in subject matter. So I've read uh, Shipbreaker and The Drowned Cities, which are two of his uh, YA selections. Oh, I have read Shipbreaker. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'll have to check it out. So for our book synopsis today, I'm going to be reading directly from the book's jacket. Anderson Lake is a company man, Agrigen's calorie man in Thailand. Undercover as a factory manager, Anderson combs Bangkok's street markets in search of foodstuffs thought to be extinct, hoping to reap the bounty of history's lost calories. There, he encounters Amiko. Amiko is the wind-up girl, a strange and beautiful creature, one of the new people Amiko is not human. She is an engineered being, crush grown and programmed to satisfy the decadent whims of a Kyoto businessman, but now abandoned to the streets of Bangkok. Regarded as soulless beings by some, devils by others, new people are slaves, soldiers, and toys of the rich in a chilling near future in which calorie companies rule the world, the oil age is past, and the side effects of bioengineered plagues run rampant across the globe. What happens when calories become currency? 
What happens when bioterrorism becomes a tool for corporate profits? When said bioterrorism's genetic drift forces mankind to the cusp of post-human evolution? In The Wind-Up Girl, award-winning author Paolo Bacigalupi returns to the world of the calorie man and yellow card man in order to address these important questions. And just to note the calorie man and yellow card man are some short stories that the author has written. Which I did not know about before, and I've read this book previously. So now I'm going to have to go back and seek those out to, to gain a fuller understanding of where all of this comes from. We do have them in the SAPO collection. They're in a book called Pump Six and Other Stories, in all case right. anybody wants to check them out. So initial impressions, what do you guys think? I think I was stunned into silence at the end of the book. <laughs> it was, it was very just, there was a lot of darkness in it. And so I, I did have a hard time with some of the scenes that were represented in there, particularly to Emiko, but gosh, it's just like at the end, when I was getting towards the end, I was like, is everybody going to die? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't quite turn out like that, but, <laughs> but it's like, wow. Yeah, I was, I was a little bit like, I don't know what to do about this story in my head now. <laughs> it does end sort of on a hopeful note, though. It's like, yeah, kind, yeah, you, you could absolutely. I think mean, of it's it tottering, but yeah. <laughs> it, it ends on a very science fiction note for me. Yeah. Where there's some, a little bit of eeriness. There's some potential impending destruction of mankind yet to come right. as we mess with things, which to me is a very sci-fi type of ending when you I, feel a little bit unsettled. They kept saying, what would they say? Jesus and Noah, Jesus and Noah. And there is something of hearkening, like it's, it's a little foreshadowing to the end of the book. <laughs> so because there's a flood, there's a flood. And then also who will continue on after the flood? Right. Right. The new people, the new people. There's a lot of genetics, genes splicing throughout the book. And so the, these new people, which are the toys of the rich often in Japan, are likely the future of humankind. I really enjoyed this book. I, I, going into it, it's, I mean, it's dystopian mm -hmm. and it's plagues. And I was like, oh, we're doing a lot of dystopian and we're doing a lot of plagues. I feel like that's been really prevalent in media that I've been consuming lately. And I thought, oh, not another one. But I really enjoyed this book a lot. I feel like it was expertly crafted and that it merited the awards that it received. I loved just the literary pieces of this book, the way things connected, like we were just talking about, like Noah and the flood. There are all these brilliant, subtle connections that I enjoyed. And I felt that everybody was wrapped up at the end, every character. And I felt that their endings were earned and deserved, which mm -hmm. is, as a reader, for me, that's very satisfying. Yeah, I agree. So what was your favorite scene from the book? I think for me, it was when Emiko realized she could be more than what she had been told she was and she's saves herself and she like takes on hyper speed basically and is like running away i know she doesn't end up quite in that scene saving herself she gets captured or not captured 
what happens? <laughs> it's like when she, no, I think she gets away. Yeah, she gets away. <laughs> but it's like, it, it was, that was really powerful for me that she jumped off that roof and landed on a balcony and was able to zoom out of the building. No, she did get captured because they were like putting her in water and stuff. But how does she get away from them after that? I guess we didn't see that part. <laughs> she ends up back with Anderson. Yeah. No, no, I think she gets somehow. Yes. <laughs> but I think it comes into her power before that. She starts realizing that she's fast and speedy before that. When there's um, when she's in the market and she's being shot at before she even meets Anderson. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And time, she feels like time slows down but right. it's because she speeds up she, yes, she's fast her, yeah her adrenaline starts spiking so she can move faster than everybody else yeah so she starts to come into her potential at that point in the story i think you're me. right right yeah she does that's like the first inklings of it but i think she realized when she, she doesn't obey what they're telling her to do to open the door she decides to take her own fate into her own hands and she leaps off the building <laughs> and lands on that balcony <laughs> That, that was the part for me that was very powerful. What about you? What about you guys? My favorite scene in the book is when Jai D is at the monastery. And I want to read part of it because I, it, I don't know. It just felt very impactful for me. He says, Jai D touches his eyebrows, fingering the pale half moons above his eyes where hair once stood. He still hasn't gotten used to his shaven state. Everything changes. He stares up at the bow tree and the Buddha. I was asleep all along. I was asleep and never understood. But now as he stares at the relic bow tree, something shifts. Nothing lasts forever. Akuti is a cell. The cell is a prison. He sits in a prison while the ones who took Chaya live and drink and whore and laugh. Nothing is permanent. This is the central teaching of the Buddha. Not a career, not an institution, not a wife, not a tree. All is change. Change is the only truth. And then another paragraph down, he said, in a thousand years, will they even know that bow trees existed? Will Nawat and Surat's great-grandchildren know that there were other fig trees also all gone? Will they know that there were many types of trees and that they were of many types? Not just a Gates teak and a gene-ripped pure cow banana, but many, many others as well. Will they understand that we were not fast enough or smart enough to save them all that we had to make choices. It's the language and the way that that oh, thought is yeah. articulated. It's, it's very poetic. And I yes. think a lot of the writing throughout is poetic. And that one, that question really stands out to me as we, as we face our own future, you know, will they understand that we were not fast enough or smart enough to save them all? And that's, that's a reality for us environmentally right now with the creatures that live on our earth is, they're changing and disappearing. Wow, Alyssa, I thought we were just going to talk about sci-fi this morning, and now you're making us think. Cue the polar bear on the uh, melting ice cap. I feel like this book goes there. It really does. <laughs> it, it really makes you face a lot of a lot of what's happening right now in our world. Yeah. I think he does a really good job of bringing the world to life too and and making you 
making you feel it. Like, I think this book actually made me sweat just by thinking about it being hot and humid. That whole scene right at the beginning with the Megadon, where the Megadon, you know, breaks its chains and picks Anderson up and flings him across the room as he shoots poison darts at it. And just the the way he describes like the marketplaces, you know, the actions of, of people, like he he really brings those scenes alive in a lot of cases. Oh, yeah, right. The swelter is everywhere and it's gross. Like all the references to hot booze, uh, no ice, <laughs> the swelter, hot beer is gross. No, thank gross you. Gross every time. <laughs> yeah, just how the world is deficit. The resource scarcity that, that they are facing is just everywhere. It's everywhere in the book. <laughs> the characters are very complex too. Like in a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I would argue, I mean, Anderson Lake is somebody who's made to not be liked. He, he's not trusted by anybody that's around him. And he seems to be quite okay in that environment. But yet he does he does things that that make you question. You know, he in that scene with the Megadon, for example, he notices right away that that guy is mistreating the animal, and he says, "I want him out. He's mistreating the animal. He's not smart. I want him gone." And you know, he turns out to be prophetic about about that. I think that's because he's a shrewd businessman, not because he cares for the Megadon. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of questioning of like, gosh, does he have, is, is he really looking out for people? Like, does he really care for Emiko or, or is it just like what he's, what, what really sort of would benefit him and the company? I think he's a very consummate businessman and he is very focused and driven to succeed at business and meet his goals. Yeah, it makes you question who's who is without a soul. The question of the soul that travels along in the book, it, like you, like there are souls that wander, the pea that wander around, that the unfinished business that they have. They're not hungry ghosts. They're they're just trying to, they can't move on, and <laughs> yet into their next life. There was a part in the book where where Jai-D, after he breaks out of the. The, well, he doesn't break out of the, mo- the monastery. He just kind of walks out of the monastery. And he's with his, his um, he's going to go confront the people who took his wife, who made him humiliate himself so that he can then eventually give up his, his rank. He's going to go get revenge, basically. Let me see where they're talking about, about the Cheshires, which I love these little, these little creatures. They're gene spliced cats that are, that mimic the Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland. And now they're the dominant, they're the only, they're the, they are the cat species. <laughs> the, the domestic cat has, has all been not eradicated. They just kind of evolved into this cat now, not evolved, but subsumed, subsumed by this more evolved species. And the guard Samchai, Samchai that he's with, they are looking at the cats. They're like with a, Jai D is going to shoot one. And he's like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. And they start talking about, do they have souls? And some Chai says they breed, they eat, they live, they breathe. If you put, if you pet them, they will purr. 
and so they're and then the and then dryades like they're just empty vessels no souls fill them and he shrugs maybe even the worst monstrosities of the japanese live in some way i worry that noi and chart and mali and prem have been reborn in wind-up bodies not all of us are good enough to become contraction p maybe some of us become wind-ups in japanese factories working 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 we're so few in comparison to the past where did all the souls go it's this question of what happens to us after is brought up time and again. So maybe the souls are going into these wind up new humans. I hadn't even noticed it until you brought it up, but it uh, it's like a, a thread that winds through the entire story, which is one of those masterful pieces of writing. Why, you know, why I liked it about it so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the Cheshires are awesome. No. They're really awesome. <laughs> they, have this, they have this ability to molt and change. They said that they molt, but it sounds like, you know, and later in the story, they they imply that they've crossbred creatures with other creatures. And I just wonder yeah. if they're crossbred like, with like a chameleon or something as they molt and change color to match their surroundings. Right. Yeah. I, just, I was wondering I just, that too. Yeah. I imagine the fur just kind of rippling into another color. Yeah. <laughs> or do they have fur? <laughs> I don't know, but they sound so cute, and I want one. <laughs> well, the Megadons also are, are a gene hack. They're they're built to take in less food and produce more more work. Mm-hmm. But Emiko is a person, just oh, a agree. just a person grown from a test tube, right? And they're their responses to certain stimuli are programmed into them. But otherwise, they are completely human. They just have different abilities, pretty much, right? I mean, she's not like an actual wind-up. Right. Right. She's not a robot. Right. Yeah. But they do describe like the... Yeah, how she... The the herky-jerky, which kind of like the... Oh, when the hichi kichi, which really made me go, stop saying that. That feels very vulgar. <laughs> it's, they describe it as stutter stop motion. Yeah. And which I makes can't... me think of, you know, like how people move in a strobe light. But yeah. I think it's because she's fast. They, she talks about trying to control her motions when she's out in the market so that people won't notice that she has that stutter stop movement. And once I learned that she was very, very fast, I assumed that that was her speeding up in those moments and that the human eye couldn't trace the same way that their eyes might be able to trace and so the motion looks choppy i think you're right i didn't realize that explanation that is very good because she keeps talking about whenever she's trying to fit in where she has to go slowly 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 so oh my gosh yeah i think that's completely right so i was gonna say like it's hard to make sense of some of the characters like Hoxing. Hoxing to me is just as unlikable as as Anderson Lake. I mean, he he does help his people, but you know, he he is very quick to cut and run and save his own skin when the time comes. Anderson Lake, at least, you know, he has that one that one statement where he's talking i think it's to yates like you're concerned of you know we need to we need to get food to these people we have people who are dying 
and uh, Yates is, I think it's that part where they're arguing about the kink spring at the very beginning. And it's also Lake who tells Emiko, you know, there are entire settlements of new people up in the up in the mountains of of Malaysia or wherever. You can flee to the north and be amongst people just like you. I think all of it in both both of those characters is selfishly motivated. They're both businessmen. And I, I do think they're both selfish. And sometimes, you know, when you're trying to get your way, you are kind. Sometimes you're nice. Sometimes you're bragging about knowledge that you know about new people. And sometimes you're ruthless as you're cutting a deal. I think it's mixed. And they're, they both are very, very mixed for me. Hak Seng shows kindness to Mai. She seems to be his weakness. He goes back and saves her at the end, right? It's implied that he, I mean, that he tells the, the driver to turn around and go back and grab her so that he can, even though he knows it's foolish and it's not going to save his own skin necessarily, he might miss Carlisle's dirigible and may not escape. And they never tell you what happens, but they kind of imply like, if you want a happy ending in your mind, you can say, he scoops up my, they make it to the dirigible and they get out with Carlisle. Or if you're more fatalistic, you'd be like, no, probably gets killed somewhere trying to save Mai because this <laughs> luck is not so hot. It seems like Pak Sang keeps trying to prepare for what he thinks, what he, what he knows inevitably is going to come to this, to Bangkok, where he's like the inevitable of like, everything's going to come down around his ears again. But he, he saves cash and diamonds and but it's in this world of where everything is how much food you can gather. He, he saves the wrong thing because <laughs> it just burns at the end of that. Where what you know when he, when the inevitable does happen and riots continue start up again. It's like they're they're he and Anderson are playing an old game, but there are new rules and they're not they're not evolving for that. Right, Hawk saying certain certainly isn't i mean i think you know anderson is able to advance his plans a little bit further but then there's that one unforeseen fly in the ointment that brings it all down i know end, right? he gets sidelined during the big action parts of the of the book at the end he's just trying not to die <laughs> but like right there in front of the guy who has his life in his hands yeah, it's yeah. There was really, you know, he's not like the action hero in the book where he's going to go out and save things. They killed that guy off in the earlier in the book, JID, and so kind of he's throughout <laughs> the entire book as a ghost. I know, yeah. So he yes. never goes away. He never really goes away despite but he's, dying. Yeah, <laughs> he's a character throughout, which I thought was very cleverly I done. I love that he's. I love that he is existing alongside Kanye as she tries to make her decisions throughout yeah. the rest of the story. He, he of... becomes the voice in her head. Mm -hmm. Or is he one of those? Or uh, is he one of the P? P? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> B one or the other. Yeah. Either way, he's, he's present. Right. I, I like her, her turn at the end of the story. She too oh. kind of becomes her own person, like Emiko becomes. She's like, no, no, we're not going to do this anymore. And I, for a while, I was like, I don't think the queen is an actual person. I think that. <laughs> so she, um, she's just a figurehead. She's just a figurehead, but does she even exist? Somebody even asked it in the book. Does she even exist? 
What? Uh, maybe. <laughs> well, she comes to power in the end. The child queen. She does. She, she decides does. no more. There's no uh, more protectors. Somdet Chow Praya. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> I'm doing it on my own. Maybe she comes. She's old enough. Maybe she matures would, enough. I wonder. I hope. I wonder if he'll ever write a sequel to this book. <laughs> I'm interested in what happens in this world after this. After this book ends. So. Who is it that Emiko kills? The protector, she, some the some the some that Chaya Brya, right? Yeah, and, it's yeah, a, but and it's a, a title. Of, it is a title. They never give you that character's real name. And that's how Akarat ends up in running okay. things for yeah. a bit. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes the new some that Chaya Oh, okay, I got you. He assumed that role. And then she eliminated it after. She well, he actually. It says in the end that Akarat becomes a monk to atone for his failure to save the city. He can't save face after what happened because he lost the entire city to the flood as the pumps were destroyed. Right. I, I think by environmental by the environment ministry. Ironically, I think so. I think yeah. Um, Kanya sets out sets things in motion. She's. We're gonna we're gonna take things back. This is not how we're gonna run this she's, city. It's not the city. The monk, it's the people. <laughs> and she the sends people. the monks out with the seed bank. I love that so much. Them. I love that scene. <laughs> it's a great scene. What about Gibbons? Oh, I did. I wasn't sure if I was the whole time when we were they were talking about wanting to find this character and the he was name dropped here and there and um, Gibusen. <laughs> like. Well, I know. I was like, I wonder what this character. If we're ever gonna meet this character, and oh my gosh, I kind of really liked him. <laughs> there was one thing that um, JD and JD, I have con- you know some issues with too, because at the beginning he's he's taking bribes from people. Well, he takes it, but then he's like, he burns it. I think in front of the people, like, doesn't he, when he's there on the, the fields, the, the dirigible fields, he's like, how dare you, how dare you bribe us? They, they count out the money, they take it. And then how dare you bribe us? (laughs) And His morals are very high and very strong. He's the tiger, the tiger of Bangkok. (laughs) He's very patriotic, but you're right. He does take bribes. And, And as he, when he first comes into the, the environment ministry he does what everybody else does he takes the bribes but then he does he makes this real patriotic shift and goes to war against the trade ministry and gets known for it they uh they like to uh what do they call it the whisper sheets they like to make a big deal out of him i love the language i love the, the different things that the author made up to build the world (laughs) and you have the grammites who were secretly fetishists in some way okay unpack that a little bit the the grammites to me it's a well it's a religious group it's interesting that they're named the grammites what do you think they're named after billy graham (laughs) if you're going to force me to say it Billy Graham. Interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. I didn't catch that. that <laughs> that's what I thought. I, I could be wrong. I was wrong. thinking that too, but I was like, uh, well, okay. 
but Emiko says, like, even the, the ties who in public are disgusted by her will sometimes come back to patronize her. And, and then uh, Jaidi talks about the sea is always coming for them the at the very beginning he's like you you can't you can't keep these things out you know how the uh, even if they block off the water the ocean always comes do you remember him talking about that he says you block off the water but then spores blow on the wind and and come over here and you know, they pass on their genes, and so next thing you know, your seeds won't yield fruit anymore because the plant's been altered genetically. And it's like continued theme of change and then isolationism versus keeping your borders open. That theme is huge throughout the entire book at the tension like between the environment ministry and the trade ministry, letting people in, not letting people in, the foreigners. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of strife going on in this in this world. Oh yeah, here. Okay, so I found the the part. He says the Thai kingdom is being swallowed. Jaidi idly surveys the wreckage his men have wrought, and it seems obvious. They are being swallowed by the ocean. Nearly every crate holds something of suspicion, but really the crates are symbolic. The problem is ubiquitous. Gray market chemical baths are sold in, Ch- in Chatuk Market, and then men pull their skiffs up the Chow Praia in the dead of night with holes full of next-gen pineapples. Pollen wafts down the peninsula in steady surges, bearing Agrigen and Pure Cow's latest genetic rewrites, while Cheshire's molt through the garbage of the swan, the Jinkok, Two lizards vandalize the eggs of night jars and peafowl. Ivory beetles bore through the forests of Khao Yai, even as Sibicosis sugars blister us and Phi Gan fringe bore through the vegetables and huddled humanity of Krung Thep. It yeah. is the ocean they all swim in, the very medium of life. How far into the how early on was that? Because that's like that that's also a really big foreshadowing too. That that's on page forty-seven. Oh, it's all it's all the way at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> no, he he's he's very good at weaving these things in. Oh, yeah. and, and there are lots of lots of themes of this i mean we could we could take any one of these you know the the ecological standpoint the ideological standpoint do the wind-ups have souls do the cheshires have souls i mean they're clearly living creatures and i would say any living creature has a soul but i i don't see how you could see any different but there's also the issue of like the unintended consequences that that come about from just our our meddling with things right i was listening to somebody because i wanted to hear a few other opinions before i i dove into this discussion and somebody mentioned how it's like a, a frankenstein science and the consequences of that the no forethought and like what 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 does it mean to say to like to make this science to to make a human without 
pores that can <laughs> that can let them sweat. What is it? Instead of saying questioning of can we do it, should we do it? Why are we doing this? It's the Jeff Goldblum question. Yeah. In in the original Jurassic Park, that that was his line. Your scientists got so sidetracked with whether or not they could make a dinosaur, they never stopped to ask if they should. Right, right. And there's already like like we were talking before about the the mammoth meatball that they they made recently. (laughs) Why are we doing that? But in the land of time of food scarcity, growing meat in science labs rather than subjecting cows to their existence in these meat farms what's the more ethical question to be asking ourselves well not just ethical in terms of animal rights also but the meat industry contributes significantly to climate change and so if we're trying to prevent roll back alleviate climate change then maybe we're looking for meats from a different source yeah, and if it tastes the same, maybe mammoth meat is pretty darn good. <laughs> but potentially soulless. Uh, but potentially, because it's just the meat. It's not the actual, <laughs> they're not actually creating the mammoth and then slaughtering it, which would also be like, what are we doing? Oh, <laughs> but so the many... soul is what makes it taste good. <laughs> oh my God. It probably is. <laughs> the soul is the seasoning of that mammoth meat. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> Whenever we get into this, I always think about Margaret Atwood's book, Oryx and Crake, and the Chicky Knobs. And if y'all have not read that book, I highly recommend it. It's the first in a trilogy, and it's nuts, but it also has to do with genetic engineering. And there's a point in the book where the main character is going on a tour of this genetic lab, and they're showing um, that the scientists have created this thing called Chicky Knobs, and they've it's it's a chicken, but it's it's more like an anemone, they say. It's because it's just like a mouth that they feed. It has no eyes. It has no beak. You feed the central mouth. And then there are like 20 different buds that protrude from them are each growing a chicken breast. And they're like, oh, we have it for legs too. Oh, no. I don't think I like this at all. <laughs> it becomes no. really central in the story. And then later someone works in a chicky knobs uh, fast food joint. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I think we like, should add this to the reading list. I think so. <laughs> Ooh, it's it's very, it's themes are similar and also just the level of disgustingness and depravity. Margaret oh Adwood goes there too. So if you haven't read a lot of Margaret Adwood, just, just know that if we read Oryx and Crake, it's going to go there. <laughs> oh God. I already have a hard time with like chicken, the, the non-chicken chicken. It's like, why are we calling it this? Can't it just be... Can't we just, ha- I really like fried tofu. That stuff is good. <laughs> it's not fried tofu. It's, it's not like fried tofu. It's just plant stuff. <laughs> compressed soy patties. Uh, I don't like chicken. <laughs> Solient green, anyone? I pass. <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> I think as we ponder all of this, the book also addresses kind of like that, you know, Kanya is very like, we need to quit messing with things. JD is like, we need to quit messing with things. But when you get to Gibbons, Gibbons has a much different take on things. And there's this, this scene where he's talking to Kanye, where she, she shows up at his palatial resort slash prison that he's in with the pool and all his lady boys. And, and he says, um, he says, don't cling too tightly to what's natural, Captain, here, look. And he talks about the Cheshires. He says, a hungry little beast, a good thing. 
that if it's hungry enough, it will succeed us entirely unless we design a better predator, something that hungers for it in turn. And Kanye says, we've run the analysis for that. The food web only unravels more completely. Another super predator won't solve the damage already done. And then Gibbons says, the ecosystem unraveled when man first went a seafaring. When we first lit fires on the broad savannas of Africa, we have only accelerated the phenomenon. The food web you talk about is nostalgia, nothing more. Nature. He makes a disgusted face. We are nature. Our very tinkering is nature. Our every biological striving. We are what we are. And the world is ours. We are its gods. Your only difficulty is your unwillingness to unleash your potential fully upon it. Which wow. I know is a, yeah. And then that's a theme that we've talked about before amongst ourselves. Um, and I know, Tim, you, you brought it up when we talk about like, um, what is, you know, how are we altering the world? And you, I think you've said things like uh, hair plugs are altering nature. Birth right, control like, is altering we, nature. Where do we stop? <laughs> we, there are the small things, but then there's also the big, big things. And do we stop? Do we keep playing? Do If we hadn't played with like bread mold, would we have gotten penicillin? You know? <laughs> well, Isaac Asimov once said that... Uh, Great discoveries don't start with Eureka, but with, huh, that's funny. Just playing around with things and you notice something strange. But this world actually kind of sounds a lot like Kaiju Earth. Everybody is just trying to survive. It it sounds like everything in this world is like trying to kill something else. The only difference is that the humans in this world set <laughs> unleashed the, the the predators killing everything else. I don't know. Is it any different from the world we live in now? Right. I don't think so. <laughs> everything, you know, the, where creatures are vying for dominance mm-hmm. to survive. The, the constant battle, even within our own body, within our own blood cells or, you know, when viruses and where did COVID come from <laughs> the will to survive is a theme throughout this book too and you see that with Amiko. oh yeah yeah she yeah has, she has the will to survive she it's, over- that, it's not something they bred out of her when they no. made her subservient and crossed her DNA with the Labradors no yeah they they had to train her from really young and she overcame all of that to survive it keeps making the point that how practical the Japanese are because, <laughs> you know, like he he said that uh, the Japanese have been having falling birth rates and they had an aging population. Mm-hmm. So this was the natural solution for them to, they to needed perpetuate workers. their people was to, okay, well, people don't want to have babies. We'll just make babies. <laughs> will manufacture them and i'm wondering like when governments are going to start doing this because we know that there are some elements in the world who are who are not as bound by scruples they're they're more unscrupulous yeah and when do they start genetically raising their own soldiers creating people with 
high reaction times and low, you know, high pain tolerance and lots of Neanderthal DNA to make them really brutal. And I don't know. Frightening thought. I feel like there's some other stories that have that like biogenetically engineered soldiers that's ringing a bell for me and I can't remember where it comes from. Tank girl? <laughs> Is it in Tank girl? <laughs> the, and then the, there's a question. the kangaroo sh- soldiers. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> that's right. So, so that that is actually the main character in Shipbreaker. Uh, we talked about uh, Bachelupe's YA. So Shipbreaker and um, the Drowned Cities and Tool of War. The 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 main character that links all three of those books is a genetically engineered soldier or weapon you you know like a a human weapon basically and it crosses over with ai in different places like martha wells all systems red the protagonist there is partial ai partial human soldier i guess i think those questions come up again and very moody (laughs) self-deprecating I don't know. Are we are we at the who would you recommend this to point? I was having a hard time figuring, thinking about that. I was like, gosh, it's so dark. <laughs> People who want to question their world. <laughs> People who are into biopunk. <laughs> That's a new word I didn't know. <laughs> oh yeah, there's we we researched this before. There are like so many different divisions of the punk genre, like cowpunk. Like weird things that, yeah, there's, it's that science fiction that's set in the old West. So it's. Mm. Yeah. Dystopian future. <laughs> right. Right. But, you know, there is a lot of high minded thought and a lot of thematics. So like, I think anybody who wanted sci-fi with a real literary tone to it would find this attractive because it does it poses so many so many questions about the outcomes of some of the things that we're doing and what they mean to us as at the core of our beings you know like what are we doing to ourselves let alone the world does that make sense oh totally yeah it totally appeals to the yeah the part of me that loves literature is so beautifully crafted and as i read aloud too you could hear it it's very poetic the language is beautiful it's beautifully written i i listened to it and read it at the same time and i just could not stop listening because of how beautiful it is and i wanted to hear it more than just read it because my mind wouldn't i feel like my mind was taking it in better when i was listening to it <laughs> sometimes yeah, it it's it's both, yeah. Not everything, not everything will translate like that. I mean, I just wonder why, why Thailand? Why did he set it in Thailand? Oh, I, there was some. He he was like taking a vacation. I think he got sick there, some, or something like that. <laughs> there was there was a bit of an author's note at the beginning of the the audible that I read. <laughs> so he got food poisoning in Thailand so. and decided to it. write a book about it. Like, yeah. Like, oh wait! I think I can make something of this. <laughs> I think it is a very fascinating, uh, fascinating culture, a fascinating place. Very interesting. Anything that I've ever heard about Thailand, so I can see the appeal personally. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I really liked that this was different than it taking place in America. We've been we've been exploring other aspects of our globe, and I'm really glad about that. <laughs> as far as recommendations from me, I would definitely recommend it to anybody who liked that Works and Crate trilogy by Margaret Atwood. Um, again, literary, but also to people who like to read Chuck Palahniuk. For me, this has some similar elements in the sense of craftsmanship, but also just willingness to push the envelope. Also, Neil Stevenson, who we're going to read at some point coming up because with Snow Crash is on our list. But uh, he's he's written, Stevenson's written some really out there kind of things also, testing and exploring our limits. I think it's a great story, and I can't wait to see what Patrick Loopy does in, in the future. I, I also highly recommend the water knife by him i know uh if you live in the american southwest it will frighten you it will frighten you water is the next gold i can even show you like right here i have the texas fiscal notes from november december what's the headline drought in texas and the subheadline how Rain scarcity affects Texans and the economy. The water wars, they've already begun. <laughs> <laughs> they've been going on for a long time, actually, yeah. if you read um, I mean, Cadillac well, I guess, Desert. Yeah. <laughs> All the way from when Los Angeles stole water from Upper California. <laughs> yes, that was so crazy. Um, go back and watch what? Chinatown. Chinatown. <laughs> All about that. Yeah. The farmers having shootouts with the with with the city folk over over who gets the water and yeah. Like, do you want food or <laughs> why build a city where there is no water? <laughs> so the yeah. real estate guys yeah. can make money. They and then wanna... even yeah yeah even here in San Antonio we keep expanding and expanding and we're expanding over our water source over the Edwards aquifer why do we keep putting fields of concrete down over where we need to get our water well and we're we're probably going to end up being in stage 3 restrictions for much of next year if we don't or it's uh, just going to be that's that's the new that's the new norm is the yeah. restrictions so get used to bathing by just spraying cologne on. Ew. <laughs> Start powdering our hairs again. Yep. And your yard will be dead. Yeah. There'll be nothing Zero but sticker burrs, sticker burrs and cactus. Natural native plants. <laughs> there you go. So thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or other episodes we've done in the past, please give us a good rating. To view our book list or reviews or our suggested reads, you can look us up on Goodreads. We also have a LibGuide. If you just Google for Sapple Escape the Earth, the LibGuide is one of the first things that comes up on Google. And then you can write us with stories, suggestions, random thoughts, or interesting sci-fi and geek culture info at sappleescapetheearth at gmail.com. Join us next month when we'll be discussing Who Fears Death by Nettie Okorafor. Looking forward to it. So anyway, thank you again. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks, everybody. 
escapes the earth.